0: world of work podcast with james and jane hi this is james i wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world you can learn more about them and register for them via our website www.worldofwork.io that's www.worldofwork.io Hi everyone, this is Jane, and just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. (music) And here we are in the main part of today's episode. You're with me, Jane Stewart. And today I'm speaking to James McPherson of Rick's Fluent, and we're going to be talking about harm prevention in the workplace. So hello, James, welcome to World of Work Project podcast, and uh, it'd be lovely if you could just introduce yourself to our audience and maybe say a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure thing. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um actually a little bit nervous like weirdly enough i'm a massive fan of it i know that makes you feel sick when i say it but like, i'm a massive fan of what the work you do both you and james it's a great podcast so i've got a my, a friend of mine introduced me to this podcast and when i when me and you were chatting the first time and you said oh come on i text and be like oh my god adam i'm, I'm going on what the work <laughs> <laughs> that's um, so cool <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, hi again, thank you for having me on the podcast. My name is James McPherson. Um I run a company called Risk Fluent. I've been safe in safety, health and safety as most people will call it for just over a decade. I and mean, then about four years ago, I started a podcast called Rebranding Safety, which was kind of born out of the frustration of how people perceived safety and how we did safety. And that over oh, four years later led to us starting the company really. So in a nutshell, that's really what we, we're trying to do is, is by our practice and by our interactions is change the way that we do and see safety more focused on actually, to your point, actual impactful harm prevention um, as opposed to As opposed to I think an overarching or overpowering demand of just ticking boxes. We try to take a lot of evidence-based practice and bring all of that stuff over into what we call normal work. I think a lot of it is done very well in aviation and high reliability industries, but it doesn't really break into normal work. So we try and try and bring those two worlds together. And rebranding safety still exists and it just me talking to loads of people very similar to what you guys do on here, exploring all of those things and then basically that becomes my research and I go to clients and we play around with it and um, we see what works and what doesn't and rebranding safety kind of became our purpose as a company so really risk fluent now exists to rebrand safety one interaction at a time that's our little tagline that's us in a nutshell
0: brilliant thank you for sharing that and regular listeners will recognize lots of terms and phrases that probably explain why you're here yeah. um i'm going to pick two or three just to let people know if they don't aren't familiar with us so one of the reasons we really wanted to talk to james is that fundamentally the genesis of the Of the caring is from the same place which is born out of frustration so born out of frustration of what regular workplaces are experiencing and that's very similar for us so it's lovely to have you on to talk about that but also you some of you eagle listeners will recognize us talking about high reliability industries and what we can learn and will be familiar potentially with my slightly nerdy passion for looking at some of those high reliability industries like aviation and trying to understand how they've used behavior change to help inform and improve practice so very much a mutual uh, a mutual interest with the work that you do James and we're really excited to have you here on the podcast. Um, so today we're talking all about harm prevention in the workplace in the broadest sense from a health and safety perspective, from a risk management perspective and from all the practical things that go on in workplaces. You I know work with a whole range of workplaces and industries and contexts. For you, what does harm prevention
1: mean? So, I wouldn't really use that phrase at all until you introduced it in this kind of question set. So, and, and I really, when I first kind of, you, you emailed me stuff, I first read it, and I was like, oh my God, what kind of, what is that? But then thinking about it, and we were talking about it, it for me, it, 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 it's, it's just being people-centered. So what we do is, as a, as a company is we, we communicate to our customers, like, there's loads of safety stuff. That we have to do and i think a lot of probably your audience especially my audience and my customers will, will have this problem loads of safety stuff we do has zero impact on the shop floor but we have to do it because we can't tender for the job or we the customer won't let us on or we might lose customers or whatever so it's more of a commercial need but it's called safety stuff risk assessment rams and stuff like that, method statements you've got to send it before you can even get on site but then the lads and ladies on the shop floor have got no idea. Like that, They just think that's a load of rubbish. So it's kind of one thing we do with our customers is we take that off of them and just do it, get it out of the way and put it over there. So when I think about when you kind of said harm prevention, for me, it was kind of like... It's what we do is kind of get that out of the way, so that when when we're on site with you, or you as the manager, or you as a team leader, or whatever are on site, you can focus on that people centered, impactful risk management. So for me, in a nutshell, um, thinking about it for the last ten minutes, <laughs> that that's kind of how I would probably how I would probably see it. It is the prevention of harm of people, and I think you can only do that by having like a people centered approach and understanding that the presence of these safety documents that we do might not necessarily be an automatic precursor for impactful risk management.
0: It's very hard to have this conversation without immediately going off onto a tangent, (laughs) but I think one of the challenges that we see, certainly in the workplaces we work with, is that a lot of health and safety is quite rightly regulated by law or regulation and therefore it's already taking up time and energy of organizations because they have to do it, which leaves them very little bandwidth. Like you say for the stuff that will then have the impact on the workforce on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I, it, it always, always gets me thinking about, you know, that idea of compliance versus behavior change and like, what are we doing because it's the safety rails versus what like, if you imagine like you're, you know, Temping bowling and you've got the rails up. So I always think about compliance is like the safety rails. It'll stop you going crazy into the other into the other lane. Yeah. But actually, is it going to make you more successful at hitting pins or throwing better or teamwork? No, none of those things. So that makes a lot of sense. So thank you. I think one of the things that struck me is that particularly in organizations that have quite high physical risk. Uh, as listeners know i work with a lot of sports organizations for example and i know you work with construction and things like that as well they have probably been a little bit maybe they, they take health and safety and harm prevention quite seriously quite as as they should probably and probably devote more time and resource to it because there are bigger physical risks
1: yeah. do you
0: do you think psychosocial risks are considered in the same way as as the more physical environmental risks in organizations and when when you're working in organizations do they get treated the same is it different how does that work for you
1: there's one thing you said a minute ago, which I want to touch on real quick as well. Within safety kind of ledger, leg- so we talk about compliance a lot of the time, right? And I'm careful. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much of this because I could definitely go down this rabbit hole quite deep. But we talk about compliance. It, it, in general, UK legislation is actually pretty good. Like it's not that bad. A lot of the stuff that we do that's called compliance it does not exist in the name of the legislation. It exists in the name of... I don't want to tire anyone with any brush and say it's because of insurance or it's because of accreditation, but it, it is commercially driven. A lot of it is commercially driven and a bit of arse covering through the line, of, particularly if you think about construction is such a good example. The CDM regs are the primary piece of legislation for for that that process and and they're not bad they're actually not a bad piece of legislation and actually they're very clear on not having generic uh, stuff It got to be proportionate to the complexity and the risk of the project it's really clear um and it's quite good except what's what we've generated off the back of that is loads of generic paperwork that's not proportionate to complexity or the risk. Uh, It's just loads of butt covering, which is such a a frustration. So it's not so much the compliance itself, it's the application of set compliance that that is our biggest issue, uh, I think. On your, your, your kind of question then, health has always been the poor relative of safety in health and safety. Always. We... Get a kind of an overpowering sense that we focus on safety, and I've been called up a few times because I just call it safety. We will consider health in that, and it, for me, it's one. It's one. They're one and the same. Health has always been the poor relative whether it's dust construction dust or uh, repetitive strain or manual handling maybe manual handling is not the best uh, that's the best example because that's quite reasonably well done even though there's loads of stuff that we do the crap in that as well but, but ultimately it's always been the poor relative so then we get the introduction as if it came out of nowhere and nobody thought that we could be stressed and now all of a sudden we go oh stress is the problem or psychosocial risk as a collective is, is a problem it was massively under considered in the workplace and with the hse actually produce a a really good simple set of documentation called the the management standards now they're nothing fancy They're, they're actually i think phenomenally good and simple for the management of they call it stress. So we'll call it stress for, from their point of view. Barely, barely utilized, barely talked about. So many people don't know about it for years and years, and years. And then typically in safety, what always has happened, happened when ISO, ISO introduced 45,003, which is a badge for managing psychosocial risk. And now all of a sudden, everybody's interested in psychosocial risk because they get a nice badge and they can tell their customers about it. Is it kind of considered in the same way? Definitely not. If you were going to really try and bring that down to a simple yes or no answer, the answer would be no.
0: Okay. Firstly, just an endorsement for those management standards because I've taken them into so many meetings and gone, "Do you know these exist?" And people go, "No." Do we not have to pay someone for those? And I go, "No, they're on a website. We could just use them." And oh, People yes. are like, yeah. "Oh, where's that when?" I'm like. Do you not know their website? So we'll put the link to those as well because they are—they're really solid and um, they're a great starting place. And for a small organisation, they're a really healthy way to start thinking about it. That's um, so I'll,
1: that you've that you've come across oh, the amount I, of people. That you don't. have
0: to—I think you have to be uh, somewhat of a well. So when you work in, a, as you know, background, I've I've run organisations that are very very small, and when they're very very small, every penny counts. And so if there is an answer somewhere on a website that I can find that will help me better get the right person to do something or find a way to do something a little bit more cost effectively. I'll find it. And I remember the first time I came across like that whole area and I was like, you know, when you sit it's midnight and you're at your desk and you're looking around going, am I, I'm still here. How do I not know this is, how do I not know this exists? Surely this is a basic, like every company should be sent an email saying, did you know this website exists and has all this resource that is pretty much free? And actually will also allow you to be informed if you're hiring a consultant. So for me, it was about, I could ask people questions about it. And if they didn't know, I'd be like, well, if I know, and you don't, you're not the right person. So I'm a massive fan of it. I want to ask you about this poor relation idea, or maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of the phrasing that you talked about. And I want to ask you about how it relates to ownership. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I find frustrating. In organizations that I work with is that all too often, depending on where a function of the organization sits in the directorate or in the leadership team will depend on how it's treated. Quite often I find uh, if health and safety is sitting within a technical estates facilities function, which it very often is, the relationship with the HR department is, is kind of very transactional. Like we will deliver these courses of these areas. And I find that. I mean, challenging would be a nice way of describing it. I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand how, if the very function of health and safety is to to minimize the harm to the workers in the workplace, predominantly, and people using the services, mm-hmm. then wh- why would the relationship be so weak? Is that something you see? Or do you see organizations that bring those two things well together? Yeah. How does it work out there?
1: It's it's you've kind of hit the nail on the head. is typically put into like an operational type role, or depending on the business, maybe like a facilities estates type department uh, 100% and I've always found it very ironic that safety desire to be considered as part of the business holistically but then but then are completely addicted with creating a nice little silo for themselves but I think us as a profession we we have some serious identity issues I think we need to deal with but as a whole, yeah, that always tends to sit within operations. What, what I would love to see it become and what I would love to see Risk Fluent try and drive, and, and we try, I tried to do this in a previous role, and unfortunately I decided to redesign, and it was just a nightmare, and, and we ended up leaving and, and starting a consultancy. But, but I, I would actually not love to see a lot of us in safety are driving to have a health and safety director on the board, right? It's quite a rare thing to see, um, and, we, and we're trying to push it. And I'm a bit uncomfortable with that because I think, how big does the board get? Do you have a head of health, do you have a director of health and safety, a director of ESG, director of CSR, director of HR, Director? and you could go on all day, director of conflict management, director of bribery, you know, we literally go on all day. and And I just think, if, if you were to imagine quite a big organization, just as an example, because this example wouldn't apply to a small business that doesn't really have the finance or the resource, but just to put it as, as an example, why do why we not have like a head of risk on the board? And then underneath that, you've got kind of people risk, kind of legal risk you know, whatever, you kind of, you you kind of break them down. So we try to talk about it sometimes like operational risks. So the risks that emerge from the operations of the business, an operations not being just the manufacturer of the product, but also the operation for the finance team, their operations is sitting in an office doing what they need to do. Stress and DSE would be a big risk for them. Whereas in your uh, operations, it would be, I don't know, pure or something else, right? But when we start talking about data and bribery and stuff like it's just another risk type but ultimately the management of risk the, the models and the theory and the thought process to manage risk is very much the same so like i would like to see it as a we start to see kind of risk generalists within an organization that, that can fall back on specialists such as a health and safety specialist or, or ideally a safety specialist and then a health specialist because health is it's i don't i think it's too broad for it to be uh, a generalist topic and then i think safety is as well and then you've got a data specialist and a a bribery specialist esg csr and so on that fall behind them and i just that that's what i'd like to see is something that we, we start to create more risk advisors that understand risk management as opposed to how safety has been molded over the years in just learn the regs and learn the acop of each individual specific hazard all the time every day this is kosh this is machines this is and so on and it's like that's actually not what we can refer to that or easy you can just go and get the acop of hse boom and read it awesome but shouldn't we be thinking about how do we make risk-based decisions how do we make predictions how do we understand a socio-technical system and how do we understand Behaviors and decision making, and all stuff like that, and and how do ultimately we manage risk? But yet, in safety education, we don't really teach people how to manage risk. Yet, risk management is the cornerstone of what we do.
0: I think that's really interesting you said that because I don't think it gets taught particularly well at executive level either. And one of the things that I have, and I I know you've heard me talk about, uh, so forgive me for repeating it, but one of the real frustrations I have is that generally risk registers of organizations are entirely related to risk to organization at executive level. So when you go into the board of directors, their risk register, which which should, should is a debatable word actually, I would describe it, is often a the biggest groupings of risks from all the risk registers below, right? So ideally everyone's got a risk register and what I think is probably an error is that most people look and go, okay, well, what are the biggest ones for the organization? And they go on the top register, right? Um, Firstly, I I think that's probably a flawed thing because I think entire departments probably, although they have lots of risks, those risks are all well mitigated, well managed, and there's actually no risk to worry about at organizational senior level because it's being managed um, rather than just picking one from everything. But also, when you look at the templates that get out there, right? So, you know, you know, the risk register templates, the ones that, you know, when you start your business, it says, oh, you need a risk register and download it. The groupings or the categorizations, I think, massively influence how people at senior level think about risk,
1: yeah. right?
0: So, for example, generally there isn't a people category, yeah, right. So you'll see a compliance category, and the therefore they'll they'll have. So if we work in a child services area, their DBS checks or their um, government checks, depending on what country they're in in the home countries, their government checks will sit under a compliance risk. Is everyone government checked? yeah i'm like so that's that's the risk to the business that they haven't done what they should it's not a risk of harm to the individuals that are working alongside those check people or the risk to the beneficiary or the or the customer and i think there's something really interesting about that because i think where it's owned and who thinks is their responsibility is and what their responsibility is about risk will completely shape where the resources are put and like if you're sitting. If you're sitting, and I'm going to say this to board members right now, if you're listening, if any of you sit on boards or sit at senior execs of organizations, ask yourself when you read your risk register who are we protecting? Who are we trying to make harm less likely for? Because my bet is it's the organization, which is why your comms department are so powerful right? Because it's about reputational risk, 90% of this stuff, right? What are customers going to think of us if we don't do this, right? And are we going to get sued financially, Yeah. right? And that, that and you and I know, you know, this, I'm going to say, where's the moral obligation to run a business that society is, is not afraid of, and not shouldn't be scared of or worried about what they're doing. Yeah. And I just... I guess I wonder how much when you work with organizations, how confident or not you are. And do you see good organizations at this? Do you see organizations whose top bosses get it? Really get it?
1: Yes. More so in like actually the last, what you, Risk Fluent is actually a, a very new company. Um, we only started at the beginning of this year as a, as a standalone consultant. And since then we've interacted with companies that I'm like, you get it. You, you get this prior to that. I think I've been terribly unlucky to work with some really poor companies, which has been good because it's really taught me uh, a hell of a lot. Um, but ultimately I struggle to say, Oh yeah, I've got, I've worked with people that have got it and done well at this, uh, prior, um, to going self-employed. Whereas I was with a company talking to a company who, who, um, only a couple of months ago who are now a customer of ours. And, um, and, and they work in a high-risk environment. And it was interesting that that customer brought up kind of a similar conversation. And they, they mentioned two things which pricked my ears up, and I was like, this is going to be a good relationship if we move forward. Well, first thing was they were like, well, we, we've got compliance, James, but ultimately, like, there's the working at height regs, and then there's what my guys do, which is rope access way up in the, in the middle of the bloody sky. And if something goes wrong... There's, there's no, they're gonna fail. There is no capacity to fail. Though it's a serious incident. He was like, so we can, we can deal with that. Then we've got, how do we fail safely at the top? And I was like, mate, you're reading from like HRO textbook. Like you're, you're, you're singing my message. And then he was like, and then ultimately we need to think about stress as well. So he was like, if my, if my guys are stressed. And they come in and then they're not thinking about work so we come back to one of the earlier questions around psychosocial risk if we're coming in and we're, we just had an argument or we're stressed because we don't know whether we're going to pay the bills which is a big issue for a lot of us right now and they're not concentrating on whether the hook's gone on the right place and then or the hook goes on the harness or they've got the right lanyard or whatever then boom they're, they're in big trouble so there are people that get it 100 percent. there are people get it but we are driven massively particularly in the uk that compliance is the gold standard whereas i don't i don't think anywhere that's like saying in finance that what we're aiming to do as a company is to break even like we would never do that in finance but in safety we seem to go yeah what we want to do is achieve compliance like Huh? I'm, I'm sorry. That that's is that not the bare minimum of what we would do? To so, so to your point, there's something I've said a few times on the podcast. If the health and safety at work act disappeared tomorrow, if all the legislation disappeared, so let's say Brexit caused all of our legislation to just disappear in this like ap- apocalypse world that we, where it maybe nearly happened, or whatever your opinion is. And I tie myself in knots here by mentioning Brexit. I shouldn't have mentioned that. But anyway. Um, so let's imagine this fictitious situation. We have got no legislation. Would you, as a customer, start sending children up chimneys or under machines again, like we used to back in the day? Because they're nice and small, right? So you can get them in. You keep the machine running. You know, they can clean it. Well, no, of course we wouldn't, right? Okay. So it's not compliance that you're trying to achieve, then. It it is actually you you, you do care. Oh yeah, of course we care. So I think there's a there's a there's a perception that the board don't care. And I think they do care, but I think they think that compliance is safe. I think fundamentally that's a problem. I think, I'm not saying all, and I know there's a couple of people that disagree with me when I say I think the majority of boards uh, do care. And I think, I genuinely think they do. I don't really want to live in a world where I think board members don't care um, about other people. And there obviously are horrible people out there, but I think they've been kind of brainwashed, particularly in people risk that. Being compliant is safe. And, and there is case study after case study that can demonstrate this, but more recent in the UK, one that will hit us all, hits me quite close, It's Grenfell. Grenfell was was a compliant building, debatable, but for many believed it was a compliant building. With hindsight, we can say it wasn't. But the complexity of that legislation is we built that, we refurb that, and we thought it was a compliant building. There's an amazing lady that does some phenomenal work in safety and fire safety. Um, who would actually be a great guest on this podcast uh, called Jill Koenig. Um, Her book is phenomenal, and her work is phenomenal. And she came on the podcast, and essentially we had this massive conversation around compliance not being a precursor or an automatic guarantee of safety. And I think that's the problem. I think most people care, and would be heartbroken if they, if they, if their business or their operations really hurt or upset or harm somebody but they think that compliance is safe i think that's the biggest issue we've got to deal with
0: and i think i think you're right and you only have to look at some of the sort of big i guess governance failures certainly in the charity sector and in other organizations and you listen to those people involved and there is a level of shock right when you hear some of them you're like how did this happen? We did everything we thought we were meant to do,
1: yeah.
0: and I think it's interesting. I think you said brainwashed, and I think I, I would use I would use the phrase conditioned. Um, I've I've sat on a board on a nonprofit board, and I've sat in many a board meeting, and they are so engineered and designed because of the nature of bringing a group of disparate people together to discuss the the, the fortunes and concerns of a, of a specific organization. But fundamentally, their job is to make sure like their job is to protect the organization right, and so there is a limit to the way in which things are structured in the way that uh, agenda items and things are brought and i would i think I think they're literally conditioned, and I think sometimes they're you go into it in such a power dynamic, so when you go into your first board, right it's your first time you've ever sat on a board by definition, likelihood is you are one of only one or a few people who haven't done it before. So yeah. you sit and learn from elsewhere. Right. And yes, there's board training and yes, there's director training, but the reality is that you are shaped by the boards you sit on Yeah. and the it, it's never the questions you do ask. It's always, I think for me about, about risk and harm prevention, about the questions you don't ask yeah. and what didn't get asked. And it, if it didn't get asked, because so the, for example, my thing about categories on risk registers, if there's no people category. And there's no people risks on the list under any of the other categories, unless someone is actually quite switched on in the management of organizations they might not notice that because they're like oh well, there's mm. something in that category there's something in that category that all makes sense maybe we shouldn't maybe we don't need to be worried about people risk maybe that's what our executive's telling us
1: people risk is being covered by the compliance category
0: exactly Exactly, or or the reputation one which is that's a whole separate moral thing that I've got an issue with but exactly so I think there is a for me there is something about opening up this conversation about what organizations responsibilities are in harm prevention to the people that they engage with because we know that so much of it is informed by litigation right so much of it is what could i get sued for in the certainly the commercial sector and somewhat in the in the non-commercial sector as well but i think you're 100 right i don't think board members want their organizations to do harm i think they just don't have there aren't structures in place to grow the conversation enough to actually question so if we do this what are the additional risks for the people who work for us
1: yeah and Um, i think as well sometimes the the conversation from, I mean, I can only really talk from a context of safety, but the conversation from safety over the years has been like, you have to put safety first. You know, safety first has become a very common phrase within within safety. And lots of companies will, will lap that up and they'll put it on a lanyard and they'll put it on loads of stuff. It becomes a bit of a platitude, but it, it doesn't make sense like, it doesn't make sense. So, like, I think if we're in a board and we're trying to get people to take safety seriously or people risk seriously, we, we also need to understand that it's not the only risk in the organisation and it balances with loads of other stuff. And one of my favourite things models um and then again all all models are wrong but some are useful right so let's not just not attach ourselves too much we don't want to get it tattooed on our body and before i kind of get shot down by loads of people one of my favorite model is um is rasmussen's dynamic safety model she's been around a long time and we've typically used it for um Accident response, which I've never really understood, it doesn't make sense as to, for me as to how we use it in accidents, but to look at it from a concept of an organization, it's basically like a weird diamond triangle shape and it, it presents three f- lines of failure and it says there's economic failure there's resource failure and there is performance failure and safety would sit typically within performance failure quality would sit in there as well as an example and so on economic would be budgets profit margin costs and so on and resource would be enough staff the right staff enough tools the right tools etc and there's a dot in the middle of these three lines and the dot is you, the person, your your employee, you on the board, whoever, and you're constantly navigating and avoiding all three lines. So when we say safety first, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't make any sense because we also don't want to fail economically. So when I come back to what I said earlier, in like we don't talk about kind of a good we don't have a basis in safety of a good understanding of risk management. If we did, I think we'd understand that better, that we're just one aspect of risk that a board and a company is trying to manage. And sometimes safety is not first. Sometimes if it's an accountant, if it's your head of finance and they're about to transfer like a 12 million pound bank transfer, screw safety. You're sitting in an office. It's very low risk. I don't really want you to focus on safety right now i want you to focus on not screwing up those numbers um but if if they're think you know if we're plowing them with safety 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 they just become disenfranchised with it as well and just think this is stupid it's not relevant to me and then that Interaction defines the culture that we've now got, which is safety doesn't make sense because we've we've kind of reacted to this poor management or poor approach to compliance for everything. We've reacted to that with safety, 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 and it's just too much of it. And it's not, it's not, it doesn't make any sense. So it,
0: you, I think, you used the word earlier that some of the better functions recognise proportionality within the compliance yeah. side. You're saying, and I think that's really important. I think because the risks have changed. For a lot of workers, so particularly if you're a desk-based worker, the immediacy of the risk and the, well, the level of risk at, in any given single moment is very, very different. And I think what that means is that if, if you get organizations that tend to think down one line, you tend to ignore this whole other set of risks over here, which are long and slow and erosive.
1: That's where, like, your resilience kind of industry comes in with your what is it, gray elephants and your gray rhinos, and I can't remember what there's like a menagerie of bloody gray elephants, gray (laughs) animals. But, like,
0: definitely, definitely, there are. I think, I think you made a point at the very beginning when you're introducing, and I think it's a really good one, which is for every issue we we uncover in the workplace, a, a commercial movement will form around it Mm. and I think it's very hard for organizations to navigate that because I think I understand there are lots of good brilliant people working in the resilience space and in the short term I think resilience training support and coaching can be incredible Mm. but the biggest question I will always have for organizations is if you are expecting someone to be resilient more than a short-term basis what is wrong with your resourcing yeah because people shouldn't be like that all the time because they're going to burn out right that level of stress any one day is fine but when it's been 180 days on the trot that they're covering a couple of jobs you're going to see their performance dips they're going to make mistakes but they're also probably going to leave
1: yeah, and and we when we look at resilience as well from like an organisational resilience perspective, off the back of COVID was a huge drive for resilience. And prior to that, we've had years of lean and efficiency, right? And now we've got this conversation around like, oh, lean and efficiency hasn't worked. So we now need to be resilient. I'm like, Jesus, if you all start being resilient, you're going to run out of money really quick. Like it's a trade-off. We're so addicted to one single silver bullet to solve all of our problems. And I'm like, it doesn't work. Like if you you need to be efficient, but you also need to be resilient, but it needs to be risk-based. So where the risk, the severity of that risk is high, that's where we go to resilience. We want to fail safe, where the, the severity of that risk is low, be it safety or something else then efficiency might be the answer. It's Everything's a trade-off, in my opinion.
0: Well, I think, no, and I think you're right. And I think generally the binary choices is really, really unhelpful for most people trying to manage businesses, right, and and teams. They're like, well, I do this or I do this. And you're like, well, or maybe you do a bit of both. But I, I totally understand what you're saying. I guess the thing that I worry about, I agree that many of the people that I see running businesses and responsible for businesses are great. But I think even great people can temporarily make peace with the idea that overstretching people, if they're convinced themselves, it's not forever. Yeah. And so my worry is that the thing that is, if there is a trade-off, the trade-off seems to me disproportionately often to be the discomfort of the workforce for a little while. Yeah. And I see that being, generally, I see that trade-off being made much more than the bottom line, the profit margin margin or, uh, or missed opportunities. And interestingly, one of the biggest challenges I see in, in the non high risk environments, so the, the more desk-based stuff, knowledge yeah. work is where organizations don't want to miss opportunities and therefore they end up saying, okay, we're going to take the risk of not being able to deliver on this contract and we're going to mitigate it by overstretching our workforce.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so I knew it was going to come up, which is why I went and ran and got the book before we started recording. So I've just started reading, amy edmondson's for fearless organization i followed her work and and the the concept of psychological safety for ages and actually never got around to reading the book and somebody asked me for a book recommendation the other day and i was like i haven't read it yet but psychological um sorry fearless organization has got to be one and i was like why haven't i read it so i started reading it and there's something that she said in here this is well i'm only like what five pages in to the actual book and i've i've got like 20 highlights already <laughs> that's how good it is but there's something she's said in here that i think we're touching on and, and that safety suffers from but not just safety but many things suffer from all the time um the psychologist called discounting the future so basically the the underweighing of the more important issue and in this example she gives was the patient's health um which would take some time to actually play out and the overweighing of the importance of the person that that person is interacting with response. So it's kind of like the immediate social risk of being seen to be an idiot or ask a stupid question or be uh, shouted at because you've just challenged the leader becomes more powerful than the than the long the the risk that that is bigger but it's far away so like the gray elephant kind of or gray rhino i think it is in resilience engineering like we can see the problem we know the problem but it's so far away and it's so slow moving we don't need to address it and then there's a there's a great episode i'll send you a link so you can put it in the notes there's a great episode of um, you're not so smart podcast Um, and there's a lady that talks in there where she did loads of research during coronavirus in america where you had this big divide between the two political parties and i can never remember which one's which so i'm not going to name them but one side basically didn't support face coverings and the other did right and there was many people that they surveyed that was on the not supportive face covering side that wanted to wear a face covering but wouldn't because and she coined the phrase social death is more powerful than physical death as an influencer I was like, wow. So if we think about that in safety context, we're often asked to go, I need to I need to bring some budget in or I need to invest in this or I need to upskill people or I need to say no to the tendering of this job because there is a big risk. We, to your point, going to overstretch our people. We're going to stress them or we're going to cut corners or whatever, but actually I don't want to say that because I don't feel, to Amy Edmonton's point, psychologically safe to challenge that because the majority of this board are going to say, What you you want about? This is a huge million pound contract. And you're saying no, because we might, we might hurt someone. So that kind of discounting of the future, I think is a huge problem for organizations.
0: So we're dangerously close to my favorite topic now. And I'm (laughs) going to mention three things that I think might help listeners, but also would inform this. Um, One is those who are close to me will know that I'm pretty hung up on some of uh, trying to find better tools for people in management and leadership to think about harm prevention. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to mention HVACS, Human Factor Classification, because I think it's just awesome for helping people think particularly about some of the stuff you just talked about, about what's normal and what's accepted within your practice. Because so HVACS is a model that says that fundamentally, if you're trying, if you're trying to work in harm prevention, there are, as an organization, you can try and trace, trace back. And it's based loosely on Swiss cheese models. So yeah. there are holes in your defenses yeah. and you need to block those holes. And their theory is there are those, those defenses have layers. So there's organizational level, there's supervisory, there's preconditions. Okay, um, yeah. and there is unsafe acts themselves. Right. And so they say like, so preconditions, if we're stressed about money, and and cost of living crisis has come is is here, right? If we're stressed about money, one of the things we need to think about as a whole workforce. If our whole workforce is on minimum wage, for example, we might see a disproportionate level of stress in the workplace. Distraction. Yeah. If they're working heavy machinery. We might want to just mitigate a little bit more in terms of extra observation on that, or shortening shift turnover, or something. Yeah. At least try play around with it to see what might help. But one of, the, one of those levels is supervisory, right? And one of the things they talk about in HVACs is what, what does that person have around them in terms of, I'm going to get the wording right now because I've got it wrong otherwise, is things like failure to correct known problems. Right, now, yeah. what I see a lot in organizations is people who have similar jobs that are skilled and that have risk. And if someone is happy to correct someone else within that similar level, rather than a managerial level, or there's a manager around, which is great. But if there isn't, if peers will correct peers, then the normative behavior in that group is that you're not going to just let slack behavior fly, but also if someone makes a mistake, you're going to pick it up and speak up linked to your psychological safety thing. And they talk about that as a whole layer, right? That supervisory layer. And I think that would help managers a lot more think about, why they need not always be minimizing the amount of support that's around them and space for teams to connect. Because I think they see it as a cost. I think they're like, well, every minute that they're connecting and having tea and having a chat, they're not on the shop floor or they're not out doing their work. And actually what they're doing is they're building relationships and trust such that they'll call out mistakes and and prevent things going wrong
1: so we kind of i made this this model a long time ago which we kind of try to use um with our customers when we're talking about how how performance happens on on the shop floor how people make decisions and behaviors and what influences them because i think a lot in safety a lot of the time we just think oh that's bob and bob's a bit stupid but like Obviously, Bob didn't know that he was going to lose his arm when he shoved it in there. He didn't think that was going to happen. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it, right? So, and, and most probably, most of your listeners, if they've listened to you for a long time, I'll, I'll be preaching to the converted there. Um, but we've kind of took that the Swiss cheese model and and then put it into into four segments. Um, so, four factors of performance, essentially. So, organisational factors that influence our behaviours. Then we've got cultural or social factors that influence our behaviors then we've got situational factors that influence our decisions and behaviors so like that could be anything the team we're working, the weather on the day whatever and then the human factors so all of those is and you've got each each one of those factors will have layers of their own defenses or layers of their own Swiss cheese each of that Swiss cheese layer has got its own latent and conditions and, and weaknesses in there and they're all kind of spinning essentially but we're, we're going too far down the f- a freaky model now but essentially each one of those is a layer of defense so if we we think about culture which is A kind of woolly space to operate in but if we were to think about that the norms in the culture which you've just spoke about if it's the norm to work in a certain way becomes a control measure um if it's a norm to challenge each other and check and look after each other it becomes a control measure it becomes a mitigating factor to be able to manage the risk so to your point i I totally agree um and but some of those things are easier to see than others so situational organizational factors are easier to see they're they're quite over their policies procedures the built environment all of this stuff and the situation is the weather the team whatever and the human and cultural factors are really hard for us to see and hard for us to influence like what is the norm around here the norm has been like this for 10 years but we've just had a mass change of staff so all of a sudden the norms are tweaking a little bit or the human factors is How well do we know that person? They've just said they're all right, but are they truly all right? Like their own personal traits, their attitudes, it's really hard to to understand and influence. So we all kind of have to manage those together. And and human organisational performance and behavioural-based safety both say the same thing, even though they bicker with each other, trying to say one's better than the other, but they're both exactly the same, in my opinion. And they both say that the environment that we're in And that's all of those factors, organizational, situational, human and cultural defines or guides our behaviors. So we're a product of our environment. I think a lot of the time we think we, it's the context that is important. And I know you've, I've heard you speak about this on the podcast several times, Jane, Like context of why somebody might've made that decision. Why did it make sense to them? What was influencing is so, so important, but not easy to see and not easy to influence.
0: No, and I I think, I don't think it isn't. I'm doing a piece of work at the moment and I'm using a theory called theory of planned behavior um, to try and help me work through it. And it's pretty much, it's a lot of what you've just talked about. So the theory basically goes along the lines of our, our behavior is informed by our intentions. So what we intend to do is what usually we'll do. However, that is all informed by our attitude to something So when you go back and think about this face mask thing, right? Our attitude, but attitude's not alone, right? Which is exactly what was going on with that Facebook, uh, the face mask concept. Also informed by our subjective norms. So the norms around us and how we perceive what is normal behavior and perceived behavioral control, the level to which we think we can control it, right? So for example, if we... Uh, for when you're trying to get behavior change around for more, more effective performance, for example, people have got to believe that their change will actually have some level of control over it. They can actually do something about it. So resilience is the classic example where perceived behavior control goes massively down because everyone's overstretched and they're like, I can't do anything about this. I can't cope. But the social norms bit is every bit as important. And I think I just it consistently frustrates me but I also absolutely know how difficult it is once they're so, I would refer to them as almost a sticky downwards culture. Once it's slipped, it is so hard to yeah. crawl it back to a place of healthiness because, well, it just, I if I knew how to do it, then I wouldn't be saying it was difficult. But I think because it's a repeated, it's a repeated thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something really interesting about understanding are you, it's just you mentioned like getting to know your staff better and how hard that is, but how important it is. And it strikes me, and I can't believe I've never made the connection before. I have a real problem with uh, psychometric assessment in selection processes. Right, yeah. I, I think it's, I think they're misused a lot. Yeah, and actually, they meant. A lot of them are meant to be better used in development. You know, helping someone get better. But it also strikes me if they could help organizations actually get to know their staff better and rather than using it as a way to weed out certain types of personalities, using it to help better understand how that might inform the social norms. They might have a better shot at shifting their culture because they might actually understand what matters to their people outside of the organization.
1: If I had an applaud button for that, I would press it.
0: I can't. I can't believe. It. Like, I'm. I might turn into some mad advocate for psychometric measures now, but for different reasons. That's hilarious. you
1: You're. you're so, it's, it's so. It's so right. Like we use it. I, I, I've never really understood how we use it. Why we use it in like the interviewing process? Because I think I've. I've had it in my. My last job before I went to consultant, I went through this mad psychometric. It was horrible. It was a horrific experience. They never used it again in their entire life. It basically just said a manager to be in this managed senior manager role must achieve this amount of points on this test, this amount of points on this test to go through. And, and I was like, oh, okay, that's weird. And and then they did this personality test, and they want to put, put in this kind of personality to fit the profile of the personality of a leader. And I just think that flies in the face of like theories of like cognitive diversity or diversity of thought, right? Whereas if you're on a board... Are you just going to utilize that to create a clone of all everyone that you've already got on the board? Therefore, no one's ever going to think differently. No one's ever going to innovate. No one's ever going to speak up. We're all just going to nod and agree with with the whoever's the leader of that board. Maybe that's what you want. I'm, I'm not a massive fan of working in a company like that, but and I don't think it's very good for for risk management either. And a, and a great book around this would be Matthew Syed's Rebel Ideas, which if any of my listeners are listening to this, they'll roll their eyes because I literally, literally mention it in nearly every episode that I record. I think it's genuinely one of the best books. But if we can actually take those psychometric tests and use them to interact interact with people better and and communicate a message better, like that's a phenomenal tool. But we just use them like we have for many things. We did it with behavior-based safety. I think we we're going to do it with hop as well. We just use it to whip the worker and tell them off and punish them. and be like, oh, get we don't like you. See you later. Off you go. I
0: think, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it will be really interesting. I suspect the UK at the moment, and we're recording this in uh, coming up for autumn of 2022. I think we're going to have some recruitment issues. And I think that it's a candidate's market. And I think that's gonna become a bigger problem. I think I, I read a stat, I think this morning the NHS has got like 10% of its roles are currently vacant or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um and we 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 just don't have people to put into the jobs, right? Everyone's everyone's struggling with recruitment at the moment. Mm-hmm. We're approaching full appointment in a meaningful way. What does that mean for the way organizations treat people? Yeah. And how are they going to have to change the way they think? Because I I I just think uh, I think post COVID and uh, this is a conversation I had with someone the other day, like they were going into and they said, they said to me, what questions should I ask the organization? And I was being flippant and uh, just to clarify, 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 I was somewhat flippant about this. And I did tell the person afterwards I was being flippant. And I said, why don't you ask them how they treated their staff in the first six months of the pandemic? Yeah. Why don't you find out what they did to support them? Because that's what I'd be interested in. And I think in, in a candidate market, I think, don't get me wrong, money will always matter, but it matters less than people think. Yeah. And I think ways of working will always matter at the moment. Like, can I work from home? Can I have some flexibility in my hours? Things like that. But I think smart people look at organizations and say, how do you care about your workforce? And I just think risk and harm prevention and health safety is, is just the obvious place to that that is underutilized as a way to show their organization they care in a meaningful way. I think,
1: and I think as well. It's it's, it's like long term thinking. I think the problem we have that is everything we do is short term. Taking that statement from from Amy's book, like every decision we're making is is based on what's right in front of us. You and you, you can see it. I mean, I was just dis- a bit disheartened the other day when I heard that. And the majority of, well, I've been trying to learn more about this energy crisis and stuff so I can understand why I'm skint. <laughs> but I was so shocked when we looked to a country like Germany for so many things like innovation on energy engineering and, and just so many other things, right? We looked to them as like a, a, a leader. and The majority of their gas was coming from Russia, even though we know that the relationship with Russia is volatile. And we have known since I was a kid, right? And before. And and I just think if a country like that cannot think that long term and think as a more like, mm, we've got no resilience here. I was a bit like disheartened. Like what hope have we got for like small businesses and normal, normal work?
0: None. None. Because, and, and it's, I, look, none is, I sorry, I'm, I'm becoming a bit doomsday. But <laughs> I think your point about short-termism is really interesting. I think um, the way shareholder capitalism works is on an annual basis, annual reports, annual dividends, quarterly dividends, right? Yeah. Which means that organizations have very little scope for taking longer-term risk or mitigating longer-term risk because fundamentally, if I can sell my shares tomorrow, I don't care if you worry. That's the reality as a stakeholder, as a shareholder. I don't care if you're going to not, not make me money in 10 years because I can swap somewhere else by that point. Yeah. And I think from a political system, I have to be really careful about this because I'm not suggesting we move to like a 10-year election cycle or anything like that. But it is harder, right? And as a a lecturer, we should be asking more questions. So I think there's a really good one that's coming up at the moment about the energy crisis is, you know, everyone's like, well, we couldn't have predicted this happened. And I was like, well, number one, look at the history of the West. We've had the quietest 50 years ever. We probably could have predicted it wasn't lasting forever. But go back to your point, we discount what might happen in the future and the risk. Um, But also more meaningfully, we could have invested more in re- renewable for example yeah. but irrespective of the political choice around that i'm not and i'm not i'm not getting involved in a political argument my point is anybody in power is disincentivized from worrying about 10 years time because they don't believe they're going to be in power in 10 years time or doing the job yeah. so why would they be it's always going to be the pressure of what are we dealing with right now that we can talk about show and demonstrate
1: yeah. and
0: i think climate change Uh, globalization there are some really big long conversations to have right and I think as an electorate we can actually say now and as a public hello can we can we we're definitely not happy right now but can we also talk about how maybe we avoid this happening 10 15 years time please yeah yeah. and I, I but I think you're right I don't I don't think there's an incentive to think long term at the moment is there I mean the only people I would say who do it that I've seen are family businesses so long run family businesses that are wholly owned by the private group of people yeah. seem, and that have lasted a long time. They seem to be much better at it from my anecdotal experience because they, they kind of have seen it all, I think.
1: And I think what I would love to see more is just more... Com- have, you, have you seen the film World War Z? Have you watched that film? I don't think so. Brad Pitt, Saving the World from Zombies, like great film. I, I take a lot. Of like stuff from films and fictional stories and stuff like that, and, and and I think it can teach you so much, and I kind of use that with my work a lot of the time. But there's something in there where. I think it's Israel. He goes to Israel and they're winning this zombie pandemic, right? They're Sorry, spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> they're, they're winning. They're doing well. So Brad Pitt goes over there to find out why they're doing so well. And he's like, you must have known this is coming. And he was like, and the guy responds and he says, no, I didn't know. But we've got this rule on our, on our like board of the of the country or whatever, right? This is the 13th person or the 13th man or whatever it was um, in the film in that if – the whole board or the whole team agree. The 13th person has to disagree and then plan accordingly. And I was like, Mm, pause that email self 13th person must and just like i was like that that's interesting and that sounded to me very much like a pre-mortem like how many companies have a pre-mortem and think what's how many times you ask yourself what could go wrong what is the worst thing that could go wrong with this decision and and i remember when i was working for head of safety as a trade association went to this meeting with a loads of heads of other trade associations And I said, how many times do you ask your members how many times the board, when they're making a decision that's a big decision, risk assess that decision? And they're like, huh, what do you mean? Leaders doing risk assessments? Yeah, because everything we do is a risk-based decision. How many times do we think about, I think to your point earlier about risk registers, right? We'll think about financial risk. We'll think about reputational risk. How many times do we think about people risk on the decisions that we're in the board because we're so far removed, especially in big companies, we're so far removed from the reality of work. So like if we're going, yes, we're gonna take on this job, even though we know the deadline's really tight, we know it's operating in a really small area, I don't know, building a block of flats in the centre of London, we know it's gonna be an absolute nightmare. And then we know the deadline's tight, but the profit margin on this is huge. And the potential to get more work off this customer is great. So long-term thinking from a a business point of view, this is a really good thing for us. Okay, cool. What's the long-term thinking of if something goes wrong? Like how bad would it be if it went wrong? I just don't think we have that conversation enough in relation to operational risks and or people risks.
0: No, I think you're right. But hopefully today we've talked about a few things that might maybe encourage people to talk a little bit more about some of that, we would hope. So we're coming to the end of our time, uh, which is probably just as well, because I think I could, I certainly have got a whole load of other stuff I could ask you as well. But we might be here next week. I guess before we do, you guys are doing really interesting work over at risk fluent it'd be really great for you just to share with the audience how they can learn a little bit more about you about your work about the podcast uh, and how they could get in touch with you if they wanted to
1: awesome yeah thank you very much um so the the company uh is called is called risk fluent um so risk like what we spoke about and then fluent like the language their website is risk fluent limited ltd as in limited.com you can email me, James at wristfluentltd.com, and I'll, I'll kind of pick up all of my emails. And if I don't, my wife keeps an eye on my emails, which is much better. She's much better organized than I am. But LinkedIn is probably the place I'm most prominent uh, on there, on there pretty much all the time companies that that if you're interested in kind of working or talking with us the companies we tend to work with don't really limit to industry that much unless you're like in a in a highly regulated industry that we don't have that much experience in so like aviation or rail like it would depend on what you wanted to talk about but ultimately we work with really we do two types of work so like small companies where we're doing like their safety work and we're, we're trying to do that a bit more evidence-based, but still it's that typical safety work. And then we also work with big established companies that have safety teams to help them do the more kind of cultural change behavioural type stuff. So they're kind of the two companies we work with in a way. Free content, everyone loves free content, right? So our podcast is called Rebranding Safety. Um, it's available on pretty much all platforms and, and YouTube. That YouTube tends, we put the podcast on YouTube as well. But the YouTube videos we do tend to be two types of videos: uh, pod clips, um, which are short clips of the podcast, or like the more technical type videos, so like we've just done a series on CDM. So they're more targeted at early entry safety professionals and small businesses. The podcasts were probably going to be more attractive to your audience because we talk very much similar uh, type of content as to what you talk about on here, more cultural type, strategic type stuff of safety. So, yeah, in a nutshell, rebranding safety for loads of free content. If you want to come and have a chat, I'm always up for chatting. Just DM me on LinkedIn or drop me an email. And if you want to work, that's the website, richfluentlimited.com or you can drop me an email.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk about a topic that I don't think gets enough attention um, in the workplace. So thank you for joining us. And I'm going to leave it there and say it's a goodbye from me.
1: And it's a goodbye from me. Thanks for listening to this episode.
0: Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hi, it's Jane. I just want to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question, or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork.io. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops, and development programs on www.worldofwork.io.